Now I have the superpower. I have the ability to take any good thing, any wonderful thing and ruin it with the power of my stare, with the power of my attention. And what I mean is there are things that really were meant to give me life and, and to have fun and things that you know, are meant to be additive. And then it starts to get more and more of my dependency right? More and more of my money and more and more of my time and my hope and my dreams. And all of a sudden, something that was meant to add to my life now feels like it's reducing my life. And even really good things and good relationships and, and good connections and good opportunities start to lose their luster. And I instinctively, and maybe you could identify, start to demand more from them than they're able to give back. Now, if anything in our lives deserves all of our attention and our resources and our energy and our imagination. It's love. Maybe the first love of your life was, was something like this, this precious little plush toy. Maybe somebody who loved you gave this to you and it became the love of your life. Of course, then we got a little bit older and we started to lay these things aside. Maybe because the love for this was replaced by the potential of love for a significant other. And we didn't want her or him to think that we were big babies. So, you know, we're going to lay aside the child toys and we're going to replace that with a far greater love that, you know, would inspire us to climb the highest mountain and swim across the biggest oceans. And these don't actually start to come back into our lives until another love enters our lives. And maybe that's the pitter-patter of little feet, whether our own or it's nieces and nephews or a friend's child. And we start to to lavish our love through things like this onto these loves of our lives. And we'd like to think that that is enough to tell them that we love them. And maybe in return, they would love us even more than the thing that we've given them. But we start to see that same pattern emerge that we all began with. And even though we may love them more than we'd hope they love this, just try to take this away even momentarily and you'll enter into a tug of war with someone who you love and you thought loved you, but you find out in a moment, in an instant, that at least for a moment in their lives, this really is worth all of their attention and their time and their priority. Now, frankly, we never really outgrow this, do we? I mean, we don't. Uh, whether it's the person who sweeps you off your feet or the promise of someone is gonna sweep you off your feet or it is the pitter-patter of little feet or hope, the hope of having that in your life. We know that those things are getting all of our heart and all of our soul whenever there's a suggestion that they won't be in our lives at all, or maybe we have them and then there's a, some threat that they're not going to be in our lives in the same way. And the, the thought that they're not going to be in our lives almost seems life-threatening. They've taken a significant place in our lives that almost controls us. And some of us, if we're honest, in efforts to keep the loves of our life, will put too much pressure on those relationships, too much pressure on love, too much pressure on people that we date or our parents or our siblings or our friends or our children, and they've got to be perfect for us. And then when there's this possibility that they're not going to be in our lives anymore or that the relationship is changing, then we double down our efforts and we start to do things that we never thought that we would do and never thought we would imagine doing just to try and win them back. And all of a sudden, we've ruined it. We've absolutely ruined it. Now today, what I wanna to talk about is a miracle. 
We're in a series that's celebrating miracles. And even if you're not somebody who's sure that there is a God, we want to talk about a God, even if you just have to suspend your disbelief for a moment, a God who still does surprising things. We want to talk about the miracles of God. And today, it might seem like a really strange place to start. I want to talk about a God who can work a miracle of you enjoying the loves of your life without needing the loves of your life so that you can free them, you can experience the depth of that love without having to control it. You know, maybe right now you're identifying a a slightly unhealthy preoccupation with the idea of romantic love or the romances that you have in your love right now. And that preoccupation unfortunately starts to starve those relationships, starve our marriages and starve our friendships. And it starts to spoil kids. And it leaves many of us more lonely and more desperate and more scared than ever. But today I want you to believe in love again. I really want you to believe that the love that you have in your life can be richer and even better and that you actually could be great at love. And in order to find out if there's a God who could work this miracle in our lives, I wanna look at a a miracle that might not seem like a miracle at first because it's a miracle of God asking somebody to give up the love of their life right after they got it right after that love entered their life. And the hard question that I want to ask of this story is, does God know how to love at all? The story is in the very first installment of the Jewish scriptures. It's Genesis, in Genesis chapter 22. And here, if this is going to tell us anything about God, it may make you nervous, at least at first. Here's how the story starts. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. In other words, God gave Abraham an opportunity to question God's character and question whether or not he could trust God. That's what this means. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. And so, like any loving father would do, The next morning, Abraham got up quickly. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him along with his son, Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there and then we will come right back. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders and while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have the fire and the wood, the boy said, but where's the sheep for the burnt offering? And in a tragically ironic response, Abraham says, God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son. And they both walked on together. The story goes on. When they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. And then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know 
that you truly fear God. In other words, now I know that you will trust God even when it doesn't make sense. You've not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. And so he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Now I know this is really strange stuff here. And there's a lot that may strain your credulity. And you wonder, is there's lots of questions we could ask, like, if God speaks, what does that sound like? That's a really good question to ask. Um, do people sometimes claim to be hearing from God and instead are just superstitious and even do violent and uh, destructive things? That's a really good conversation uh, to have. Do angels really exist? That's a great conversation to have. But I actually think the highest impact question to ask of this story is if God exists and this is supposed to tell us what he's like, can we trust God? Does God love us or should we be panicked? Abraham and Sarah were a really ancient couple. Abraham and his wife was named Sarah. They were really ancient and I I mean that in a couple of ways. I mean that they lived a long time ago, but I also mean that they were super, super old when they got pregnant with their first biological child. And of course, they thought that this was a miracle. They thought that because they had been faithful, God had delivered something that they had wanted, a love of their life that they had wanted their entire life. God gives them a child. And then a few years after that, that same God asks them to kill the child. Now that doesn't sound like love. That sounds like something like betrayal. But maybe that's always what love has meant for you. Maybe that's been your experience of love. Maybe every time you fall in love with someone, you're just expecting at some point down the road, there's going to be disappointment, there's gonna be deceit, there's going to be betrayal. I'll tell you about the first love of my life, at least after all the teddy bears. It was Swim Girl. I was 12 years old and she was on the swimming team and I loved Swim Girl so much. I was head over heels for Swim Girl. And then there was this one moment when I invited a bunch of friends over to my house to hang out and it so happened that Swim Girl was a friend of one of those friends and Swim Girl came along. And that was the best day. And, and you know what it's like when finally the love of your life is on your turf, right? It's like everything's got to be in its place and my hair's got to be right in its place. And I had kind of this Jason Priestley wave thing in my hair, which is probably why God took it all away because I wasn't a very good steward of it. But I had, uh, you know, my mom, I, I didn't want her to say anything dumb and embarrass me in front of Swim Girl. Uh, and we had an incredible day. And to make it even better, at the end of the day, when everybody's parents came to pick up all these 11, 12, 13-year-old kids, Swim Girl's mom forgot to pick her up. And so here I was at my house. It was just me and Swim Girl. And we sat out in front of my parents' front door and we talked. And I was hoping I would sit in just the perfect way so the, you know, the perfect spot so the streetlight hit me in just the right way. And I looked super cool and I had to ask all the cool questions and I had to be into all the cool movies and the cool bands. And you know what it's like where everything just has to be perfect to preserve or at least gain the love of your life. In fact, just as a funny little aside, there was like this itch in the back, uh, on my back under my t-shirt and I didn't even want to scratch the itch because I thought, well, cool people don't scratch itches. <laughs> you know, they're immune to itching. Um, and funny, you know, to keep going on that aside, I actually woke up the next morning and I found out that I had, and I'm not making this up, I had 30 mosquito bites in my back because they'd flown up my t-shirt, but it didn't matter because I got to hang out with Swim Girl. 
while we were waiting for her mom to pick her up. And all those mosquito bites, my mom rubbed that calamine lotion. Maybe you've seen this before. It's like this pink stuff. And she put it all over my back. It was like an inch thick, but it didn't matter because I, I got to hang with Swim Girl. Well, eventually, Swim Girl and I started going out. Of course, we were 12, so that just meant we were going out wherever my parents wanted to take us, or we were just going out to the same table during lunchtime. <laughs> but we were going out. And Swim Girl had this incredible idea that she would write in a journal a little note to me, and she'd give it to me. And then I could write a note back to her, and I would, I would give that back to her. And, and that way we could keep kind of a record of our budding romance, which I was sure was going to last for decades. And we were going to see the pitter-patter of little feet one day. And Swim Girl, she was so eloquent, she would write things like, I like you. <laughs> She'd pass it to me. And of course, I, being the hopeless romantic, would write these epic poems about climbing the highest mountain and swimming across the oceans. And I'd give that back to Swim Girl and she'd be like, you're cool. <laughs> she'd give it back to me. It didn't matter because she was the love of my life. She didn't have to do much. I just wanted her to notice me, to see me, to talk to me. So that went back and forth for a while until one day I got the journal back from her and the what she wrote was a little out of the ordinary. She wrote some lyrics from the Guns N' Roses song, November Rain. And specifically, she wrote the lyrics, nothing lasts forever, and we both know hearts can change. When it's hard to hold a candle in the cold November rain, oh yeah. That's like my best Axl Rose, but hopefully that conjures up the memory of that wonderful song. But the lyrics seem so strange to me. What was she trying to communicate? And I know obviously because you're not drunk with love for Swim Girl like I was, you can see what clearly she was trying to communicate. But at the time, my devotion to her and my need for this love kind of blinded me to what was really going on. And so I wrote back, I wrote back a poem promising more than I'd ever promised before. I'll lasso the moon for you, Swim Girl. And then I never saw the journal again. And I thought, well, people betray people all the time. I've seen it in movies, I've heard it in heartbreaking Guns N' Roses love songs, but not you, Swim Girl. Your love was supposed to be perfect. You were supposed to be everything that I needed, and you weren't, and you left, and, and it made me want to secure that love and, and hold on to the next love even tighter than ever before because I, I didn't want that love to betray me. And I thought that maybe if I could just promise enough, if I could be perfect enough, if I could avoid scratching itches enough, if I could have the perfect hair, if I could be the perfect person, then love would never betray me. But at this point in your life, you might think that that's the way it's always going to pan out. And maybe, you used to think that God loved you perfectly, but you've experienced some heartbreak in your life and it's led you to believe that the love of God is always gonna be laced with disappointment and betrayal and taking back things that you thought you needed and good things that you thought were yours to keep because you'd been a good little boy, a good little girl, that you'd played your part perfectly. I wonder why, maybe that's why God gives Abraham so much excruciating time to choose. He told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac and then invited him to walk miles, days, to get to the mountains where the sacrifice was going to take place, giving him enough time to agonize over whether or not he was going to exchange the love that he felt for Isaac with trust in God's love and God's perfect plan. I mean, what would I think as a father of two daughters if I was to get up in the morning and 
saddle a donkey and get servants and, and chop wood. And, and then to hear Isaac's curiosity of where's the sacrifice? Like, ugh, that's absolutely awful. I can't imagine how excruciating that was. But it's also a really condensed and extreme example of what I believe actually every love must go through if it's going to survive. Love has to move from feelings to decisions. Maybe feeling like God's love is always going to be comfortable into deciding to trust God no matter what. Maybe moving from the feelings of a comfortable love, enamored, romantic love that you have at first into a decision to choose to love somebody even at times when you don't like them. Maybe this is actually the depth of love, is learning how to let go, learning how to decide to love even when it doesn't seem like you're being loved in return. You know, I was still a hopeless romantic when I got married to my wife, Katie, and we've now been married for over 20 years. We've got two daughters, Tessa and Marlo, and when I first got married to this incredible woman, I told her I would slay dragons and I would swim oceans, but then we had a really rough first year. Yeah, I was on the road for most of it. I was a musician, I was in a band, and I was traveling around, and and Katie, who I'd just gotten married to, was now stuck in a place where she had not grown up with people that she was just getting to know, and we fought, and our intimacy suffered, and this was year one, a year that a lot of people said like, oh, it's just never, the honeymoon phase, right? Which, just as an aside, is very depressing if you peak in your first year of marriage or friendship or uh, parenting. Year one for us was tough, and immediately the young love, the feelings of love, the ease of love, was brought to its knees and it didn't feel good anymore. And the question became, will you still choose to stay? Will you still choose to trust? And you know, in my relationship with God, I've experienced times of absolute exhilaration where it's a mountaintop and trusting God with my life is absolutely easy. And I would be like, God, I cannot believe that you love me like this. I can't believe it. I'm head over heels, you know. I'm so wrapped up in the experience of God's love. And then I started to face what following Jesus had called me to do with my money and with my body and with my time. And the risks that God was calling me into seemed absolutely bonkers. God, why would you ask me to give up these other loves of my life in exchange for trusting you? Do you love me or should I be nervous? And my relationship with God wasn't impulsive anymore. It didn't feel good. It was just... Will you choose to stay? Will you choose to trust? And I think this brings us face to face with an approach that we have to adopt. And I actually believe that this miracle of God providing the ram for Abraham actually shows us how to love better. A parent who, you know, I'm certain, like all parents, had sought at times to control Isaac and to determine as much as possible the outcome of his life and to try and get him to behave himself and live up to expectations because he'd waited so long to finally have the pitter-patter of little feet. I wonder if God was showing us once and for all time that you can try to have control or you can trust that you are loved. You can try to have control or you can trust that you're loved, even when it doesn't make sense, even 
when it doesn't feel like it. Now, this story often comes up when people tell me that God is a monster. See, here's an example of a God who's absolutely insane, that's a loose cannon, a God who betrays. But if ever that story comes up and people are asking you to prove that God is caring, look at this story, here's how you can possibly impress your friends. And let's be honest, this story probably won't ever come up in conversation. But here's how you can impress your friends. You're going to sound so smart. We live in light of this story. We live thousands of years after this event was supposed to have taken place. And in light of that story and in light of some of the things Jesus showed us about love and some of the things that we learned about love through the Psalms and the writings of the Old Testament, what we've learned about love through generations and how powerful love is and how nuanced and and complicated love is and how strong love can be. So when we look through back through the lens of all of the generations of God revealing what love really looks like, this seems horrendous. But if you had lived up until this story, if you are one of the first people to hear about this story, if you're one of Abraham's neighbors as he told you this story, you would not think that God is a monster asking a dad to sacrifice his kid. And here's why. Sacrificing children to fertility gods at the time was normal. The thing, and I know this is hard for us to understand from our vantage point, but the thing that was so crazy about this story What's really shocking, if you're one of the first people to hear it, is a God that proves once and for all time that he will never demand that we do that. That he will stand in the place of the greatest losses of our lives. That he will be with us whenever we are at the excruciating edge of losing the things that we thought we absolutely needed and the people that we thought we needed more than anybody else. God tested Abraham's faith. And I think this is genius by putting him way out on the edge of the most catastrophic loss imaginable and saying, even here, you are safe with me. Even when life doesn't make sense, you are loved and I've got you and I'm with you. And man, I would love to see a miracle of levitation. (laughs) I would love to see a miracle of you know, flying through the air. I'd love to see a miracle of God pulling rabbits out of hats. But when I look at a miracle like this, I realize that God will always deliver the miracles that I need the most. I need the miracle of knowing that I am loved even when I feel like I'm not liked. The miracle of knowing that I'm not alone even when I'm abandoned or even when they die or divorce or dump. I need to know that I am loved. And I think this test is really nothing more than God flashing forward to, hey, when the loves of your life leave you or betray you or disappoint you or surprise you, which every relationship will do, where will you go? What will you have left if that's all that you had? And God wants us to know that we have him and that we are loved. And so we can release control of trying to orchestrate the future of the loves of our lives. If we're honest, if you're honest, Maybe you would say that at least today, functionally speaking, you would have nothing left if you lost the loves of your life. But do you know how much more romantic I can be now that I'm not hopeless? You know how much better of a friend I can be now that I don't need my friends to be perfect? How much better of a dad I am now that I, I don't need my children to be perfect for me? My wife makes me so happy but I don't need her to be happy. My kids bring me so much joy, but they are not my source of joy. 
my friends bring me so much adventure, but they are not my purpose in life. No, the adventures and the experiences that I have with people, it makes memories, but I have a purpose bigger than my moments. I have a purpose bigger than my relationships. I am loved more than the loves of my life could ever love me. So if you're somebody like me who struggles to release control of the loves of your life, then I invite you to experience this miracle so that you don't ruin the loves of your life. You can try to have control or you can trust that you're already loved more than you could possibly imagine. So how could a loving God ask anybody to choose him over a spouse? or over a child, or over a best friend? Doesn't he want me to have love in my life? The answer is absolutely. God was not asking Abraham to leave Isaac for God in exchange for God. No, if we look at it now as the story is complete, he was asking Abraham to entrust Isaac to him, to, to say, it's possible, God, that you would actually care for me and Isaac more than I could ever care for him. I can actually set it down and enjoy and be present with this gift, this love of my life, even more because I don't have to control it. God is not asking us to feel less for people. He's just asking us to release the delusion of control of those people because you don't need it anymore. You won't desperately need it for your identity and for your worth. And here's a couple of mindsets that maybe we can take away from this first. I would encourage you that God loves the loves of your life more than you could. You know, I wonder what impression it left on Isaac when he had heard of all the gods who were hating and harming and destroying and taking lives of other kids, and then there's this God here that his dad had told him about who would care enough to save him from the same fate that had probably befallen other kids that he had heard about or even that he knew. So does your relationship with the loves of your life, whatever this represents for you, does it demand codependency on your ability to love them perfectly? Do those loves depend on you like often kids depend on their parents, like you are their savior? Do you sometimes behave like you're the one that has to sacrifice everything so that this person could be saved or so that this person could be fixed? What would it mean if they could discover that there is a greater love than even you could give them? that God would love them more than you could possibly love them. And in fact, God wants to teach you how to love them better. He wants to teach you how to love them without strings attached, to love them with freedom, to love them with generosity, to love them without needing to be perfect for them or needing them to be perfect for you. But there's one additional mindset that frees us, liberates us, and empowers us to love like this, to love with freedom. Not only does God love the loves of your life more than you could love them, listen, God loves you more than the loves of your life could possibly love you. And this is the mindset that frees you to love people without needing them. You don't have to diminish your values and your boundaries and lose yourself to secure love, especially a love that would never complete you. Trust that God has a loving plan for your life and that God's love is perfect for you. You know, maybe one way you could apply this is that you could choose one more week of choosing love with your spouse, even if you don't feel like loving them, or choosing to love your child even when you don't feel like it anymore because you don't need them to pay you back for how much you love them. And it's deepening your capacity to love regardless of the circumstance, regardless of the behavior. 
Jesus even said, the greatest rule of life is to love God with everything that you are. That should be the highest focus. That should be where you bank all of your identity and worth. And the way that this plays itself out in your life is when you love your neighbor as much as you love yourself, without strings attached, without being needy, without needing to sell them anything or needing to distort yourself. You do not have to destroy yourself to get love anymore because love has already died for you. God's proven through the person of Jesus that you are worth loving to death, full stop. Even if the people in your life aren't treating you like that, you're worth loving to death. Which brings me back to a really interesting part of this story. The site of Abraham's testing was really curious to me. He renamed it actually, where this plate, the miracle of God sacrificing to show Abraham what real love looked like. It says in verse 14, Abraham named the place Yahweh Yaira, which literally means the Lord will provide. And to this day, it says, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Yahweh Yaira. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And here's what's curious about that. This site, we know exactly where it is. It's not called Yahweh Yaira anymore. We call it Jerusalem. And it's interesting to me that on the very hills outside of this city where people for generations were saying, it will be provided centuries later in Mark 15, 34, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? As if to say, even here, when you're doubting that God cares about you at all, I'm with you. Even here where you feel like you're all alone in the universe because the loves of your life have disappointed you or left you, I'm with you. And then following that lament from Jesus' mouth, he was crucified, claiming to be the Lamb of God, loving us enough to take away the sins and the fears and the hopelessness of our life forever. Maybe you are at what you thought was a dead end because you just don't have the love in your life that you thought that you needed. And really what God is doing is bringing you to the edge of what feels like the most catastrophic loss or abandonment of your life so that you can experience freedom for the first time. And that freedom begins, it just begins. It's not fully experienced, but it begins if you're willing to have a conversation with God. It's the way that all great relationships start. And that conversation simply is, Jesus, I'm giving up control of my life. Take it over. Take over my life, take over the loves of my life, take over my dependencies. I have tried to manufacture a life that I could control, manufacture a life that I could, that my capacity could deliver, but I'm just not satisfied, it's not enough. I don't feel safe, I don't feel secure, I don't feel strong, so take my life. And then lead me into a life that I can't have without you. It's, it's really as simple as that. In your own words, just say, Jesus, save me from a life without you and lead me to a life I can't have without you. And today, if you're willing to have that conversation, God has promised that he will call you a child of his and that you get to experience his love forever. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much that you love us even when we don't understand you, that you love us in ways that we didn't know that we needed, that the miracle of your love always stands in that place where we needed control and find out we don't have it. We are secure, we are strong, we are held, we are not alone in your love. 
So God, liberate us, please. Teach us how to love each other without needing so much from each other. Loving each other because we're choosing it. Loving each other because we're trusting you. Because you have loved us first and you have loved us best. What a miracle. Jesus, we pray this in your authority. Amen.